Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Who says that the men get all the fun? Quite often on this show, we talk about blokes doing military stuff. Not always. We do try our best to bring the story of women into the fold. But it being International Women's Day, the ever brilliant Rachel Stark sat me down and said, look, Zach, we keep threatening doing an episode on the Marshall's Wives. International Women's Day is coming up. Put your money where your mouth is. Make it so. So with that flea in my ear, actually she didn't stand me off with a flea in my ear. She's far too lovely for that. But having been duly told, um, I quite rightly agreed. So today we are going to do the Marshall's Wives tale. And um, it was quite amusing when I uh, released the last episode of the Marshall's series, which admittedly some of you won't have heard because that one goes out on Patreon, whereas this one's gone out on the main draw. Um, I did send my listeners off with a, a genuine flea in the ear about how listener stats always drop when it comes to the women's stuff. If I stick women in the title of a podcast, it gets about 20 to 30% less engagement. And I do not know what is the matter with people. So today you're going to get a Marshall's installment on the Marshall's wives and you are going to like it because I said so. There you go. There will be no arguments because it's a Bonapartist dictatorship, as you've no doubt come to realise by now. Joining me, as I've alluded to, is the ever brilliant Rachel Stark. Uh, Napoleonic commentator on Twitter is at bookish underscore Rachel. She runs a blog on the Marshall's and the Marshall's wives significantly. Um, and at some point, I'm hoping she's going to do a book because, frankly, there needs to be a book on this topic. Although in the meantime, I might end up sort of doing a Marshall's book edited collection and get you to sit down and do a chapter on the Marshall's wives, because let's be honest, it's sorely needed. But that I mean, that's not even an idea. I don't know why I'm waffling on about that. We shall move quickly on. Rachel, great to see you again, my friend. How are you doing? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, specifically to discuss the women's element. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. 
Well, we do keep sort of tapping and tapping into it and nibbling on the edges of it, don't we? Each time we do one of these episodes, because I'm always interested in the family angle. And as you've alluded to, there are some brilliant stories here to tell. I guess one of the first questions to ask is a kind of about the overarching themes that kind of surround these women. You know, the, and I'm not talking about the obvious one, people of, oh, they're all married to marshals. Well, thank you for that. That's incredibly insightful. We're going to go a little bit deeper. I don't know why I'm being so sassy in this episode. Um, what, what, what is it that tends to unify these women besides the fact that they are marrying into this elite, inverted commas, class of men, at least elite within the hierarchy of France during this period? Um, and I guess the, the other question is sort of what kind of happens in terms of them forming groups? if indeed they do end up forming groups you know do you get kind of I almost have a sort of real housewives of Atlanta style vision in my head of sort of different groups of women just sort of butting heads and absolutely detesting one another and almost being at war with each other within the sort of hierarchy of the martialate spouse society zone thing technical term so Apologies for the waffly question. Enlighten us, please. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what you said at the, the start of the episode, it is very true. I think that people see women's history and immediately think we're going to discuss domestic felicity and nothing particularly interesting. And it's about purely marriage, death and childbirth. But the reality is for these women, this was a time that was just as tumultuous for the women as it was for the men. I mean, you look at the French Revolution, the tribunals were happily, you know, were happily sending as many women to the guillotine as they were men. This wasn't a time of comparative safety, regardless of which, which class you belong to. So the, the the two main undercurrents that run through the majority of these women's lives are loss and, and tragedy, because in as much as, yes, they did marry into this new nobility, many of them became duchesses, sovereign princesses, or a couple eventually became queens in their own right. They amassed, in some cases, enormous amounts of wealth. But that didn't remove the danger of having a husband almost permanently on the battlefield because, you know, France was at war for, you know, a couple of decades, almost continuously. The prolonged separations that that created and the stress and the anxieties of that before you add in things like, you know, child loss and, and widowhood. And in some cases, the, the circumstances of the widowhood are immensely tragic, tragic in any circumstances. But, you know, in some cases, when you look at the, the circumstances of Madame Brune or Madame La, it's, you know, really powerful, tragic stories. And yeah, the, the courage that so many of these women had to show is not secondary to the men because it didn't happen on a battlefield. It had to be a very different kind of courage, but it's nonetheless impressive for it. Um, but you do get the sense that for the, the women who were married to the marshals of the first promotion, the sort of 1804 contingent, um, largely thanks to Madame Juno's memoirs, and we know they're not particularly accurate all the time, but for the social element of it, it's quite insightful. 
So you do get these stories of there was a mask and, and Madame Ney was performing and, you know, she'd met Madame Mortier, who she found to be very charming and very good tempered and very nice. You get the sense of what that social scene actually looked like. You also get the sense of who the outsiders were. So we know that, um, you know, Madame Massena was never a great frequenter of the court. The first Madame Udino was never particularly present at court. So you get the idea of who was Napoleon's inner circle and whose wives he effectively approved of, um, because you get that greater sense of the social interaction um, with him. You to, to totally defy stereotype, you get the sense there's a lot less quarrelling amongst the marshal's wives as there were amongst the marshalette themselves. Um, and there were little pockets of friendship. Um, you know, um, Aglaine had been a contemporary of Caroline Murat and Hortense de Beauharnais and um, Madame Soult and Madame Davou were particularly close. And when Madame Davou was going through a very understandable period of prolonged depression, having lost her brother and then her two first born children in very short space of time. Um, the marshal actually wrote to her and suggested she invited Madame Soult to come in and stay with her and spent more time uh, around Madame Soult. So there were sort of real pockets of friendship sprung up amongst them as well. What I do particularly love about that is, surprise, surprise, it's the men who are the divas. You know, yep. why, why does this not surprise me when we've all seen the portraits of the likes of Murat? As I say, almost every episode now, there will come a day where I won't bash Muriel in one of these episodes. Today, my friends, is not that day. Um, yes, I, I'm not anticipating a huge amount of focus on knitting in this episode, if I'm being honest with you, when you look at the mm. calibre of these women. I mean, if nothing else, you've got to consider that these women married the historical figures that they did marry and went on to try and make the best of relationships in some cases more and in some cases less successfully in part dependent on their respective characters but the <laughs> the idea that some of these women are all going to be sort of shy retiring types worthy of a Jane Austen novel and sort of fanning themselves and going oh Mr Darcy and all the rest of it no 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 no, no people these are hugely brilliant women in their own right and there's also this point that look we talk about the men and how the men go off and fight when the man naffs off to war, who has to take on this supposed responsibility of the man to look after the household? Well, the women who are left behind with families to raise, with estates to run, because these are hugely wealthy people. The women have to step up and be the men in these scenarios. And, and this is why I think we're going to do a lot of eye opening over the course of this episode. Before we plunge into some examples, I've got one more question I want to ask. And basically, I'm kind of doing a thing where I'm trying to needle you into rage because there are lots of myths about these women. And I know on occasion you quite enjoyed sort of bashing those myths on the head. So I just want to give you the opportunity to sort of let rip at a, a few myths that just really annoy you. Um, I think in a, in a lot of cases, the one of the things I've tend, tended to see quite a lot from largely anti-Bonapartist, were that these were a bunch of nouveau riche upstarts with no admirable qualities about them and consequently don't rate 
compared to people, um, to, you know, to famous women of the British court or the Prussian courts, etc. And I would argue that they would hold their own against any significant female figures of the era. Um, the the constant irritation I have, and as somebody who's extremely interested in the Marshall's lives, obviously, because I wouldn't be here if I wasn't, but the attitude that if it's women's history, it must be dull and facile and trivial and boring and inconsequential will guarantee to get me in a right old rage because it's just as interesting simply from another angle. They're living through the same events. They're living through the same tumult, the same you know, fundamental reshifting of European culture and borders and social attitudes in France. And their stories are just as worth telling as a result. I mean, quite obviously I'm sold on that because that's why we're doing the episode. But consider this, people. Why would you limit yourself to half the human story? Why would you just discard half of the population? It, 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 it doesn't make sense. What about sexualization of some of these women? And I don't mean that in a sort of inverted commas, traditional misogynistic objectification sexualization, but rather things like the not tonight Josephine thing. And granted, okay, obviously Josephine married to Napoleon, so not technically a marshal's wife, but that is symptomatic. And I know you've spoken about this before. That is sort of symptomatic of one way of looking at certainly Josephine. Um, do you see an equivalent happening with other marshals' wives that, you know, the, the focus is very much on sex scandal, um, because that's always something that seems to grab people's attention. Um, the, their role as child bearers and full stop, end of sentence, and therefore end of interest. There's not as such an equivalent. Um, the primary target is always Josephine and it's it's again infuriating the way her story is reduced to oh she was a randy nymphomaniac instead of understanding the dynamic that existed between her and Napoleon as the the older woman marrying this young upstart who ultimately wasn't fit for polite society at the time when he met her and it's her who molds him and shapes him into the you know first consul in waiting that he became and when you, you look at the skill set that Napoleon had, which was immense, interpersonal skills weren't always part of that. He could inspire, he could lead, but he wasn't necessarily good at the compromising or the talking people around. Whereas Josephine could excel at that. She was a far superior diplomat and she was necessary in Napoleon's journey. He he was he would always be General Bonaparte. Would he have fundamentally become Napoleon without Josephine? I genuinely don't think he would have. And it's it was through his, you know, her connection to Barra that elevated him to notice. So she was, you know, a fundamental cornerstone in his story. But half the time she's just, re you know, reduced to jokes, you know, not tonight, Josephine, etc. And Pauline Bonaparte, to an extent, gets the same. Um, she was enormously promiscuous. There's no doubt in it. But the rest of her life or the rest of her story effectively gets pushed aside just to focus on that I don't think there's necessarily an equivalent amongst the marshal's wives they sometimes are basically if you look at a lot of the, the publicly available information on them certainly for some of the less 
famous marshals or the or the non big names, if I can phrase it that way, um, essentially all that exists is birth, childbirth dates, date of husband's death, date of their death. I mean, Madame Jourdain and um, Madame Perignon and even Madame Grouchy to an extent, and she was an aristocrat. They virtually, you know, you'd almost think they didn't exist. If it wasn't for the fact they'd married somebody famous, there would be nothing to find out about them. There's no notion of, you know, who their person, what their personalities were, who they were, what they believed in. Their stories just don't exist outside of the role of being a wife or a mother. This is a really unfair question. So apologies in advance for this. Um, and we therefore might end up cutting this out. But to what extent might some of that be down to the patriarchy that comes in courtesy of the Napoleonic Code? Or is it just symptomatic of a much wider issue across history um, until very recently that actually in, in terms of trying to take an interest in um, the experiences of women, history hasn't done that until the last sort of 20, 30, 40 years? I mean, possibly a, a bit of both. I think the issue is that obviously if you were a royal woman or, you know, fundamentally significant to a specific period, if you were Eleanor of Aquitaine or Elizabeth I or, um, you know, Maria Theresa or Catherine the Great, if, if you were integral to the government and the state, obviously there is a lot to find out because inevitably somebody's going to pipe up, oh, well, there's lots of books about, you know, ex-women. Yes, there are, but I think until fairly recently, nobody really, well, not nobody really cared, but there wasn't the same attention given to what we'd maybe call working class or middle class women's stories. Because again, outside, you know, being a wife, being a mother, being the angel in the home, there was no focus on the notion that these women could play significant parts and I know that there's loads of historians doing brilliant work turning that around and there's fundamentally brilliant works out there now on spanning multiple periods focusing on the lives of these kinds of women and what they contributed to their respective periods but unfortunately that didn't exist at the period that we are looking at. Louis Chardonnay did have a work on the, the marshals um, towards the end of the, the 19th century. And there is actually a chapter on the wives. But again, it's they were pretty or they were charming and they had five children and they had or this many children. And, you know, they would grace the court. This one didn't grace the court. You know, Messina's wife was quite fat. You, again, nothing really going beneath the surface. And... It's just a shame that we're reliant on whether or not there's mentions in the memoirs or whether there's access to correspondence to find that sort of deeper level of understanding because Marshal Jordan left no private papers. Marshal MacDonald had three wives and in his memoirs mentions the first one once, the second one never, and the third one only in that she was the murder mother of his son. So their own bloody husbands didn't even write them into the story so it's it's difficult to get that understanding when you were saying about that piece of works you know sort of saying x was fat and y was pretty and all the rest of it i rolled my eyes so hard folks that i nearly gave myself glaucoma 
but you can't see that because it's a radio show. Um, I also find it very amusing that there's this double standard of, oh, well, person X was promiscuous, so we'll mention that and then ignore everything else. Like the men weren't promiscuous during this period either. Come on. Anyway, um, let us start diving into specifics about individuals. I think we'll probably make a start with the wife of the marshal that you probably have the softest spot for. That is therefore Madame de Vaux. I, funnily enough, that's not, he's not the marshal I have the softest spot for. It's actually Marshal Bevre, but he is the marshal I rate as the top. Um, yeah, Madame de Vaux, she, she had quite a tragic um early life she was was largely she again a kind of recurring theme she ha, had lost her father and her sort of chief guardian had become her her brother um general leclerc who would of course lead the ill-fated expedition to haiti and he had he'd been very keen before he departed the expectation was that it would he would be gone some years obviously we we know that he never did come back that he wanted to see his sister you know well settled and and looked after and he initially suggested the very dashing very sort of striking Jean Lan as a potential husband and she shot him down straight away because she thought Lan was bad-mannered and uncouth and so he he tried again and introduced her to um, Louis Nicolas Davu, who had none of Lan's personal charisma. Um, he was balding. He wore glasses. He was antisocial. He wasn't particularly well known for his social skills. But the two of them really hit it off, and they they were married. Um, and their wedding contract actually featured the the signatures of. Um, Napoleon and Josephine, as well as um, you know the the traditional notary, because it meant that they had become well, Davu had become the brother in law of Napoleon's sister, because Leclerc had been married to Pauline, and this sort of quite unlikely match. He was he was significantly older than her. Um, it really they really just were right for each other. It was a really warm, loving, affectionate marriage. Um, Davy was, unlike most of the, the big names of the time, n- never had a mistress, never was unfaithful. He was 100% devoted to his wife, but they had a hard time of it in that early, early few years of marriage because, again, it, it, just because of the timing, Davy was absent a lot, but there came that sort of triplicate of losses that General Leclerc, her brother, who had effectively been her sort of father figure, he was he was a lot older than her. He'd been her guardian. He he's lost overseas. And that's something that I don't think she ever forgave Napoleon for. She certainly was no cheerleader for Napoleon, nothing like her husband was anyway. And then their firstborn son, Paul, he died just before his first birthday. And the pattern immediately repeats itself because their second born child, who's a girl named Josephine for for Napoleon's wife, died almost in identical circumstances again, just before the first birthday. And one of the things we we talked about cliches that we kind of want to bust. One of the ones that still kind of crops up occasionally is that people say, well, you know, 
Child mortality was just a thing and people were prepared for it. I don't think anybody who's ever had a child would argue that's the case. And I don't care how common the statistics were or how much it was a fact of life. There is no way the, the impact of that was not just horrific. And you get the sense from, from their correspondence and reading Davy's biography, she really hit rock bottom and she was definitely suffering from what we would call now depression. And she she was really struggling. She didn't go out. She was in this just enormous black pit of loss, understandably, because virtually her whole world is gone. Um, and when she falls pregnant with the third child, you can sort of understand where her mind would be at. Um, she was still heavily grieving the two children she had just lost. Un imaginably anxious about the one who was yet to come because you've got this horrific pattern is it going to repeat itself and you know there's a slightly unsympathetic message from that a letter comes from her husband at this point saying you know you need to focus on the child who is coming and not the ones that are lost and I don't know how that could have ever been possible it it just honestly just makes me feel so sad for her even at a distance of 200 odd years, it's it's just so tragic. Thankfully, the third child lived. She was, again, named Josephine. Um, and she she grew to adulthood. But just, yeah, the, the sense of loss was astronomical, especially because she had hoped Davu would be able to get back to be with her around the time of the, the third child's arrival. And he couldn't be there. She had, so with all that sort of additional stress and the anxiety and depression, you know, even on top of what there must have been around childbirth at the time, um, you know, given the the likelihood of dying in childbirth, etc., to have to go through it all alone must have been even harder because, again, the marshals came with prestige and titles and wealth and, you know, all the trappings. I don't imagine that could have been an awful comfort when you're left alone to go through that you make the point incredibly eloquently and and well um and yes th there is that temptation to go oh death is common during this period well yeah thanks for that however that doesn't mean that the emotional challenges aren't there and you know you make the point extremely well as you know, parents are far better qualified to make that point than somebody like me. You know, once you've had a child and you've experienced that connection, that's a whole other thing. Um, so thank you for kind of making sure that people kind of appreciate the significance of that. What's the, what's her story post Napoleon? If you, if you see what I mean, what sort of, what happens in terms of the the rest of her life and um, kind of dealing with the fallout of the end of empire, if you like. Yeah. Um, so during the Napoleonic period, the, the Davus, again, as I say, had this very strong, very attached relationship. They wrote to each other all the time. Um, she would go to be with him at some of his various postings. And then after Waterloo, of course, Davu's in disgrace. He's the the marshal who has rallied to Napoleon. He is the marshal who has walked into Ney's 
Thailand demanded to be held responsible personally. So I can imagine that for poor Madame Davu, she'd probably been in a fair bit of anxiety at the time, wondering if her husband was going to end up going the way of Marshal Ney. But he's he's banished from Paris. He's essentially under house arrest. His titles are take, uh, taken away, his um, martial salary, etc. So they go from living in comparative comfort to existing, you know, on literally a handful of francs a day. And there's... Um, there's a letter from, I think, Amy's Amy's mother to one of her siblings saying, you know, they've had to dismiss all their servants, which maybe sounds like nothing to us, but would have been a significant step down for their standard of living. And it's to her that the responsibility now falls because he's under house arrest. He's not free to come and go as he pleases. He's, you know, he's out of Paris. He's got to stay in the countryside. So it's her who's got to see about the you know, tending to their estate. It's her who's got to go to Paris and see about disposal of their Paris property and to try and, you know, raise the funds that they need to survive. So in as much as Davu braved all the, the hardship of battle, it's when the battle's done that she has to step up and she's got to be the, the one who's carrying the family. Um, So thankfully, it, it was a, a relatively short period of disgrace and, and Davu did get his titles eventually restored after a few years and just as it looks like things are turning for the better again their their eldest daughter Josephine gets married um they have a huge celebration at their their country estate it's attended by so many Napoleonic officers that's actually subject to conspiracy rumors and it's just such a joyous occasion and you've you know, reading it, you kind of get the sense of they must have really thought that things were turning around. And then Josephine dies in childbirth almost nine months to the day after her wedding. And that's the loss that breaks Davu. He had had to hold her up through the early losses. And again, it's it's him who takes it hardest. And she, you know, for Amy Davu, she is to watch her husband's health basically decline from that point on. And the the marshal gets worse and worse, and eventually tu tuberculosis catches up with him. And in addition to losing, you know, five out of her eight children, she loses her husband as well, and she survives him by you know quite a few years. So it's it's a very melancholy post Napoleonic life for her. It's it's a life sort of marked constantly by loss. This is another unfair question. Do we know where she was buried? She is buried, um, I, I'm pretty sure, with Davu because he was laid to rest beside, um, it's a family plot, so Josephine, his daughter, was buried there first, then Davu went in with her. So I am, again, that's an assumption, but I would expect that Amy went in there as well. Yes, folks, that was entirely a question that came into my head because of NRWGC stuff but it, it's just one of those things that it, I, I find curious um, but also quite nice you know this idea that they do end up getting to be together in death um, perhaps that's the slightly sentimental part of me but you know for two people that were clearly devoted to one another and supported each other the whole way through their life to be reunited at the end I think is always just fitting. Will We'll move on to talk about another um, lady now. Shall we do Desiree 
next. Um, she's. I often feel sorry for Desiree, um, but I'll, I'll leave the story to you because you'll tell it better than I possibly could hope to. You're right. I genuinely feel sorry for her as well. And of all the Marshall's wives, she probably rose to the greatest height because when she died, she died as a queen of Sweden. And yet somehow I think if she had just remained Madame Bernadotte or even Madame Bonaparte, she probably had a slightly better time of it. Um, Desiree was the, the daughter of a, a merchant, so at the time would have been considered um, probably a relative social superior in some cases to um, the sort of upstarts who were who were making their names among the the marshalites um but her husband not her husband sorry her father had applied um to to be recognized as nobility prior to the revolution and it was a result of that application um which when the which was rejected by the way um when the revolution came that her brother was imprisoned and it was on as the family went to plead for her brother they encountered Joseph Bonaparte and became acquainted with him and he was welcomed into family home. And very soon afterwards, he became engaged to Desiree's older sister, Julie, which brought Desiree into contact with Joseph's younger brother, one Napoleon Bonaparte. And Never she heard of had, him. Yeah, just had a bit of a bit of a story to tell he had. Um and the two of them were very soon likewise engaged but when we talk of Napoleon and Josephine's story it is undeniably a story of passion and mutual attachment and desire and you know all the sort of essential elements of romance this was not the story that Desiree had because Napoleon fundamentally treated her like a self-improvement project and I'm not meaning that facetiously he genuinely did Her, his correspondence was all about what she should read and what she should do and how she should act and what she should think um and th there's none of the sense that he was I don't know if he was attached to the idea of having a wife or the idea of having somebody or just forming that connection but he she he was never particularly tender to her or complimentary or in any way treated her very kindly at all and then of course the minute Josephine came onto the the scene Desiree got the the heave ho and he had tried to pair her off um fairly soon afterwards that was something that she always um denied she had um, been engaged, allegedly, to General Dufo, but he'd been killed before they were married. But the, the understanding is that Napoleon had tried to find somebody for her as a way of almost compensation. But Desiree always maintained she, it, it was Napoleon and then Bernadotte. So a possible middle suitor, but he died very quickly, so we can discard him anyway. Um. And of course, for the, the third time round, fiancé-wise, she got engaged to Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, who was Napoleon's, if we can use the term, frenemy. And she basically became their 
Piggy in the middle and the two of them manipulated her and used her to kind of play off each other and you know Napoleon played on Desiree's fondness for him and Bernadotte then played on her you know former history with Napoleon but you know his position as her um, husband and you, you really get the sense that she was just treated really quite poorly by the pair of them but Regardless of that, she was found herself reasonably well compensated by way of title, etc., because Bernadotte um, was made Marshal of the Empire, and she soon afterwards also became Princess of Pontecorvo. She was very attached to Paris, and when she found that they were getting that title, was actually very worried that this would mean that they were going to have to leave. Paris and that we're going to have to take up residence elsewhere and it was explained to her that this was just a sort of a, a dignity and you know they would they would continue existing in Paris so all was comparatively well until Bernadotte was elected as the crown prince of Sweden and she had hoped that it was just another honorary title and that life would more or less go on as before but discovered that no, this meant she would becoming be becoming a Swede and she would spend the rest of her life in Sweden. She delayed her departure as long as she could. You know, Bernadotte went to Sweden a, a good year before she even left France. And when she got there, she just hated it. She was so unhappy and so miserable, and she she clashed with Queen Charlotte. Who noted in her, her diaries that Desiree was a spoilt French woman and she complained all the time and she made no effort to be Swedish. She, you know, everything French was better and she was described as a French woman in every inch. And she was just incredibly lonely and she took every opportunity she could to get back to, to, to France. And she eventually um, took up residence in France um, once again, sort of living semi-incommunicado. Um, you know, Talleyrand and Fouché would visit her and until she was compelled once again to return to Sweden, bringing her son's bride. And, you know, Julie did her duty and wanted to clear off back to France again and Bernadotte put his foot down and she was essentially stuck in Sweden for the rest of her life. And she never fully could embrace life there. It was always France that she longed for. Um, you get the sense that she was eventually appreciated as a, a good-hearted queen, but she became a notable eccentric as she aged. The, the marriage for, you know, with Bernadotte had become incredibly distant by that point. They, they weren't on anything like intimate terms. But he, you know, predeceased her. Then her son predeceased her. So by the time she was old and, you know, in, in her dotage, it was in the reign of her grandson. And she became known as the, the very eccentric old queen who would sleep half the day and then be up all night. She would call on people sometimes at four o'clock in the morning. Um, she lived this sort of very strange existence, but you just sort of never get the feeling that it was a very happy one. It is a really sad story. Um, I mean, that's two tragic stories on, on the bounce. Um, but I think we're probably going to end up doing quite a few tragic stories over the, over the course of this episode. Um, 
yeah it's like i say i just feel sorry for her i really do that that sense of being stuck in a tug of war between her and bernadotte that's that's an enviable position for anybody and also the the sort of the patronizing stance of napoleon in relation to her just doesn't sit well with me um i get the feeling reading between the lines that she was quite a naive person and i think that was probably taken advantage of yeah um I mean, we could do a whole thing on Napoleon's letters to significant women in his life, quite frankly. Uh, and that would be a whole, that'd be a fascinating psychological case study in and of itself. Um, yeah, just just unfair. She, she got sucked in and probably could have done with not having ever got sucked in. I'm curious that Napoleon was inclined to marry Desiree when his brother had married Desiree's sister, it, were there not laws preventing that kind of thing in France? Because I have this sort of vague inkling that in the UK you wouldn't have been able to do that. I suppose it must yeah. have been because he wouldn't have done it otherwise. But Well, in, certainly, from my limited knowledge of Tudor history, obviously it wouldn't have... I think under particular tenets of Catholicism, it wouldn't have worked because it would have been considered consanguinity. Because I think wasn't that one of the arguments Henry yeah. VIII used for annulling his marriage to Anne Boleyn is that he had carnal knowledge of her sister, and that Catherine of Aragon had been married to his brother. So, yeah, I th- possibly, possibly, perhaps one of our listeners will be able to enlighten us on this. But it is curious. Um, but of course the church had been very firmly shown the door at this point so this is true this is true let's keep it in the bonaparte family and move on to caroline wife of murat now full disclosure more on here um struggle to remember the difference between caroline and pauline people feel free to hurl abuse at me that was an appalling mistake um but caroline is our focus today i.e married to Murat. Um, boy, do I pity her for that. But I gather that Caroline would have given Murat a run for her money. Yeah, I don't think he had an easy seat with her either, quite frankly. Um, she was no shrinking violet. Um, and I think Napoleon, there's, a, there's certainly a quote of Napoleon saying something like, she was almost a ma- the most masculine sibling he had in the sense of her, her personality. Um, he sort of talked about, I mean, she really was a strong, we talk about strong-willed personalities. I mean, she had all of Napoleon's vices, but not necessarily as much of his talents. And I think if we were talking about her in modern terms and I'm sorry this sounds super cliche she was one hell of a diva um like all the Bonaparte women she hated Josephine and threw an absolute hissy fit at the thought of being obliged to carry her hated sister-in-law's train at the the coronation um when Napoleon made his brothers princes, but gave his sisters no title, um, there's an account of a, a family meal where 
after hearing one of her brothers addressed as as prince, she was in such a state of rage that she actually had hysterics and eventually fainted because she was just so incandescent with the thought of her brothers being quite a level above her. And it was through the sort of demands of his sisters, largely Caroline, that Napoleon granted them the title of imperial princesses. And Caroline was a woman who was quite capable of knowing what she wanted and going out to get it. And just in case somebody thinks I'm, I'm playing to stereotype and, um, you know, particularly focusing on her, all the Bonaparte siblings very much fell into that category. Um, but Caroline took up with Mura, who was you know, almost twice her age when they married. And the two of them set about introducing Napoleon to mistresses in the hope that he would get one of them pregnant and thus prove that Josephine was infertile, as obviously turned out to be the case. Um, I think with the view that they were hoping Napoleon would make their own children his his heirs. Um, but she was like her husband. She wanted what she could get out of her brother. And that would translate to... Um, you know, obviously the, the title of Imperial Princess, then they were given the title of um, Grand Duke and Duchess of Berg, and then eventually, you know, Brother Joseph had gotten his throne and they were sure they weren't going to be kept waiting. They were installed as King and Queen of Naples. And there's accounts of, you know, really ferocious rows between the two of them because they, they ultimately were at a foil for each other. Mira was serially unfaithful. She was serially unfaithful. Um, they would have. They were both jealous. They were both grasping. They would have massive fights, but it's noted that Caroline was considered the better statesman, and that she acted as regent for Murat when he was on campaign, and it was generally felt that she did a better job. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Is that saying much, really? Well, Sorry, I know that's low-hanging fruit in terms of the Mura insult, but uh, I mean, I've got to say, it kind of sounds like they almost sort of deserved one another. You know, yeah. the, neither of them people who you... Oh, sure, both of them unquestionably had the, the positive aspects of their character. And yet, what you paint there is a really kind of vivid picture of how there are a lot of aspects of their character that we would look at and go, mm, that's not great. And actually, they, they mirror each other quite well there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the the book that actually got me into Napoleon's martial stories in the first place was a book called Napoleon's Elite. And it's written quite informally. And when it discusses Caroline Mura, it basically starts, the first sentence says, she would be described today as a prize bitch. Um, but I think it singles out, and it, comparatively, it's quite effusive in praise of Mura. And I think that's where the misogyny comes in because their characters are very, very similar. And if we're going to criticise it in Caroline, we have to criticise it in Mura too, which we did effusively in the Mura episode. But ultimately, they, they shared exactly the same vices. They were both greedy. They were both ambitious to the point of, you know, backstabbing. They both betray Napoleon with a view to keeping their hands on the throne of Naples. Now, it's bad enough for Mura. He's betraying his long-term comrade, his brother-in-law. Caroline's betraying her brother um, and ultimately takes the offer when it becomes clear that the, the throne of Naples is not going to be a viable situation, takes the opportunity to seek refuge as a sort of distressed aristocrat in Austria, where she goes under the um, name the Countess of Lepona, which is obviously an, an anagram of Napoli, and hopes that her husband is going to be sensible enough to do the same thing. And now we, w without going into all the details, because we already did that um, in the, the Murat episode, Murat didn't. Uh, take the sensible option and he winds up in front of a firing squad and the this here's where I do start to kind of feel sorry for Caroline um there's a, a sort of gap between when he's actually shot and her finding out the the news and there's letters that she, that she writes to her friends and her acquaintances at the time basically saying that you know, she's she's constantly waiting for news. She's in an agony of unknown. You know, there's this stress of not knowing what's happened to her husband, hoping that he's going to be safe, Um, essentially finding out that, that that was not the case. And the the servants get a hold of the newspapers on the day that the, the news comes to, to Austria. And they try to hide it from Caroline and she insists on seeing the newspaper so they couldn't even sort of break the news to her gently. And she has just this awful attack of hysterics. And I think, again, the account is that she she does faint. And I was just looking for the, the note. She's She writes a letter to her taunt saying, my children have a father no longer, my dear Hortense. He's perished and with him is lost all hope of a good future for my family and me. We will weep for him all our life. My children are all that I can wish for. They alone can give me the strength to support so many misfortunes. And I, this is where I do kind of get over my dislike and I do genuinely feel for her because she's she's left with, with four young children. She's left in a country where she's not going to be viewed with the greatest of sympathy as Napoleon's sister. Finding out her husband has died, ultimately a brutal death. And her mother never speaks to her again, Letitia Bonaparte, um, because she she cannot get over 
Caroline's betrayal of Napoleon. So she loses an awful lot in 1815. Yeah, we talk about people who win the Napoleonic Game of Thrones, not least Bernadotte, as you put it so brilliantly in the episode that we did. But in terms of people who lose the Napoleonic Game of Thrones, I think we've just covered two who really lose out, Desiree, for one, but particularly Caroline. And and I say that in the sort of the more classic interpretation of the inverted commas Game of Thrones in that, sure, she was involved in the backstabbing and all the rest of it. And and she lost um, and lost quite royally. Um, interestingly, we never referred to Mura as a, quote, prize bitch. Um, I don't know if that's a positive or a negative. Well, we'll leave the, the listeners to decide on that one. But it's another incredibly sad story. What does happen with the rest of her life? She um, possibly marries General Francisco Macdonald. If she, there's, no, we don't really know for certain if she did marry him. She certainly was with him. She was certainly his lover. Um, and two of her her sons end up in America, as we covered in the Mura episode. Um, one of them becomes the the ancestor of um Rene Auberginois, the Star Trek actor. Um, she ultimately dies of the intestinal cancer that seems to unfortunately have this genetic link throughout her family. Like Pauline, like Napoleon, like their father, she dies of intestinal cancer. I didn't realise it affected... I knew it affected Napoleon's father and I believe possibly also his son. Um, oh, oh, mm, no, I might have made that up. That might be an embarrassing faux pas on my part. Um, but certainly he had the news sent to his son. That was part of the reason that he wanted the autopsy carried out. I didn't realise it affected the, the female line of the family as well. Yeah, pa- uh, Pauline and Caroline as well. Blimey. Um, okay, so I, 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 I'm not sure any of these are going to be kind of upbeat and happy stories. Um, we'll, we'll go there next. There is one. There is one. Shall we do that one? one? There should be one happy one. Okay, let's, let's break the doom and the gloom. Um, and let, let's do the positive one. Who's that? Eugenie de Cousy, the very remarkable second Madame Oudinot. Okay, second Madame Oudinot. Hit us with it. Um, her, her story genuinely starts a little bit like a novel. Um, she recounts um, having sort of been educated and is, is talking with her friend about their, their dreams of the future and who their husbands might be and what this sort of new Napoleonic future is going to bring for them. And they discuss how they're going to send news to each other of their marriage if and when they happen. And, you know, if, if the husband had the Legion of Honour, they would send each other a gold ring. If the husband had um, was a count, it would have, you know, this kind of stone in it. If the husband was a duke, it would have a diamond in it. And as it turns out, Eugenie is the woman who sends the ring with the, the diamond because um, she is is from the, the locality where Udino's first wife had lived and comes into contact actually with Udino's first wife for whom she had the greatest of admiration as a, a young girl, um, but meets the, the marshal when he's casting about really thinking about settling his oldest son um because you know at, at this stage um Udino's got seven children 
left motherless when his his wife passes away and he's he's thinking about victor his you know the future general you know that he wants to you know see him settle down and initially had briefly considered eugenie as a possible bride for him and he is very very taken with her um and eventually sends for her the you know the most indirect um you know, proposal through through her um I want to say through her uncle. It might actually have been through her her brother in law. I'll need to double check the detail, but basically saying, tell Madame de Cusse that I'm I'm 44, I have income of such and such a year. Uh she knows my social position and she would be very welcome to share it if she would choose. It's not the most romantic proposal known it's to humanity, not. is it? But she accepts and they have one of the happiest, longest marriages of all the Napoleonic marshals. Um, she is just a, a newlywed bride. She, in fact, because of her memoirs, he's the only account, to my knowledge, that we have of a marshal's wedding. Because she recounts um, basically the entire day for us. And then very, very soon afterwards, Udino has to depart for Russia. Um, so she's, she's, you know, although she's known of and known the marshal uh, a you know, decent amount of time, her time as a wife has been very, very little by comparison. Um, and she knows Udino's reputation. He picks up the wounds fairly frequently. She took delivery of a, a bust of the marshal and as it's being unpacked, the shoulder falls off. And she's sort of beset by this terror that something has happened to Udino. And whether you believe in fate or coincidences or whatever, or omens, it, it happens that the same shoulder is the shoulder that is hit by grape shots in Polotsk. And when she gets news that her husband has been so severely wounded, she gets ropes in her uncle, gets in a carriage and takes off across Europe to be with him because her point of view is he is my husband, my role is at his side, I don't care whether Napoleon does like, you know, wives being on campaign, I'm going to be with my husband and I'm going to be the one who nurses him. And she she genuinely does it. She treks across Napoleonic Europe to reach Udino, um, you know, she there's there's the account that she, you know, loads up every possible comfort she can think to to bring him. She takes a a case of 20 bottles of wine, and when she finally gets there, she's overjoyed to see that she has this terror that, you know, he's gonna have lost one of his arms and that she's, he's gonna get gangrene, and that's gonna be how she loses him. She's just overcome with delight to see that he's he's still got both his arms, he's standing he's talking he's in you know as good health as can be expected and you just have this lovely account of how just delighted she is to see him and joyfully says well I've you know I've brought this you know this wine is it going to be of comfort to you you know you need to eat we need to get you fed and he keeps one bottle and gives the rest to his staff and she's sort of really touched that he's so focused on his man's welfare but so sort of frustrated that she's brought this to help him feel better but she stays by his side the entire Russian retreat. So we talk the impact, you know, it has on 
fighting men. She's a very young woman going through exactly the same thing in the accounts of the, the frostbite and the, you know, that their food is frozen solid and that Udino gets typhus at, at one point and, you know, she talks about the worry she has from because they can't, you know, they can't get him warm and she's worried about the effect on his wounds and so on. So you really get this undercurrent to the story of the military defeat and the terrible losses through the eyes of somebody who is worried for her husband. And it's just a really extraordinary, just slightly different angle to look at it. But when we talk about courage, geez, oh, this woman had it in absolute buckets and you know she sort of concludes the chapter in the memoirs of Russia as they get back to France and she's just so glad that Udino can get some rest and she kind of summarizes it by saying you know it was a really awful winter as we got back but how could that matter when we'd been where we'd been just unbelievable there we go people we told you that this wasn't going to be predictable stories of numbers of children that that did or didn't survive infancy and, and all of the other stereotypes that people dump on women's history unjustly. I mean, what a story to tell. And we said this actually, didn't we, during the Udino episode, that the the sheer gore and okay, it's an untechnical term, but I'm gonna use it anyway, the ballsiness of this woman to just pack everything and leg it across Europe in the midst of a conflict head into an active conflict zone. Sure, your husband might be the Marshal of France and therefore a Marshal of France and therefore easier to find, but that doesn't make it any less of a remarkable thing to do. Um, yeah, an incredible woman. Tell us what happens post-Napoleon, because I think that's that's always an interesting angle with, with all of these individuals. You know, their their lives don't end just because Napoleon ends up on, on St Helena? Thankfully, this is where there's a happy story. Um, Udino, as, as we know, despite being a walking colander, was one of the longest-lived Napoleon uh, Napoleonic marshals. He lived until he was 80, and they had a wonderfully warm, loving, happy home um, you know, Udino had had seven children. He he then had four by Eugenie. There were loads of grandchildren. It you get the sense that this was a really happy, united family. She was on the best possible terms with her stepchildren. Um, Udino had sat out Waterloo. Funnily enough, Napoleon blamed Eugenie for that. He said that um, Udino was, was stupid and was too much under the influence of his young wife of good family. Um, and it was interesting that he he saw her as enough of a threat that to blame lay the blame for that at her door. But they had a very honourable existence throughout the, the Bourbon Restoration. Um, Louis stood godfather to, to one of their children. As I say, I've, you get the sense of a, a very happy, loving, united family, which is nice when you look at how many of the other marshals' wives had very much the opposite. Their lives was just seemed to be an endless string of losses. Yeah, we, we've done, I, I'm very sort of, God, we've now done the positive one. Um, so we are about to now turn to more 
um, quite harrowing loss in some of these women's cases. Let's let's talk about Madame Lefebvre. And I say that um, being completely ignorant of her story because we haven't done Lefebvre to the point where I didn't even know Lefebvre was your favourite. Um, so we might rectify that next time around, in fact. But let's talk about Madame Lefebvre and her story. Yeah, Catherine Hoopshire is my absolute favourite Marshall's wife. I have an enormous soft spot for both the Lefebvre's and they're another example of a really united, very loving relationship, but unfortunately one that was endlessly blighted by by loss. Um, and both the Lefebvre's very much started from the bottom, so they sort of epitomise the, the rags to riches element of the, the Napoleonic story. Um, she worked in a, a laundry. She was an ironer and a, a laundress when she met her husband. She was fully illiterate. Marshall Lefebvre taught her to read. Um, she was never wholly fluent. She still needed a little bit of help with her correspondence as, as she um, grew older, but she could read enough that she could, you know, sort of read her letters, etc. Um, which I love that he taught her to read. I just genuinely just love that so much. And they married quite late. I mean, they're 30 and 28 when they get married, which for the periods, you know, comparatively, comparatively old. And she accompanied him on campaign. And she was famously plain speaking. Um, she was a great maker of puns. She... 100% said what she thought and both the Lefebvre's never made any pretense at being grand regardless of how elevated their their status became you know when she was the, the wife of a marshal when she became the Duchess of Danzig there was never any pretense that they were anything different to who they had been which I quite respect and I admire that because you know, some of the other marshals very much did get carried away with the sense of their own importance and sort of delusions of grandeur, where they, you know, they they took the titles and the trappings, etc. But fundamentally, they as people didn't change. They were straightforward. They were bluff, honest, and very much represented what they had been beforehand. And she never used to shy away from saying that you know I was a laundress and sometimes she seemed to quite take a bit of mischievous glee and saying that in front of other ladies of the court and talking about her time working in a laundry because it kind of scandalized them and she, you get a sense that Napoleon genuinely liked her and genuinely admired her to a degree because he could be very contrary with women he'd be you know on one hand very charming and then the next thing he'd say you know your eyebrows are very strange um and be fantastically rude to them he really seemed to like Catherine and uh, at one occasion when um somebody had rather snootily said to Napoleon oh sire it pleased your majesty to drop the title of duchess on Madame Lefebvre Napoleon actually got really quite annoyed on her behalf and said it pleased me to raise the title of Duchess to Madame Lefebvre and he always seemed to make a great point of using her title every time he spoke to her and the Lefebvre's were you know they were very big supporters of Napoleon's right from the the days of the Brumaire coup and they were both quite attached to Josephine as well 
she had a, a really great relationship with her husband. I think it kind of summed up in a quote where she once said, I can forget I'm a duchess. I would never forget that I'm Lefebvre's wife. Like that was the top honour. Didn't matter about the titles. She was Lefebvre's wife. Um, and they would, you know, they would josh each other as well. You know, they were talking about, um, you know, making kings. And she said, well, Napoleon would never give it to a fool like you. They would, you know, they were, they would banter with each other. And you, I just get this sense of this incredibly warm relationship. And she's called sometimes Madame Saint-Gene, um, Madame Without Embarrassment. And her the subject of her life's been a comic opera, a film starring Sophia Loren that I'm desperately trying to track down. If anybody's listening and knows where I can find this in English or with English subtitles, please shout, because I've been looking for it for years. It's lost. Um, but the name actually doesn't belong to her. Um, Napoleon had given that name to somebody else, but it's become sort of synonymous with with Catherine for her method of plain speaking. Um, interestingly, after Waterloo, Bernadotte had come to call in his old comrade. Um, at this stage, Crown Prince of Sweden. And when he, he came to, to see the Lefebvre's, um, Catherine had it be said that she wasn't at home at Traitors and had the door shut in his face. They just absolutely my favorite i know you you shouldn't sort of get overly attached or emotionally attached to historical characters but i really do like the lefebvre's so what's the the story of of loss for her then because we uh, you've given us a brilliant i mean i'm chuckling away to myself as you're you're telling this story but i am conscious that there, there's a dark side yeah to all of this the lefebvre's for all the the warmth and the mutual regard and the mutual respect of their marriage had a marriage that was blighted by loss and tragedy, probably the most of any of the marshals and marshals' wives that, of the whole 26. Catherine gave birth 14 times. Two of those 14 children survived to adulthood. Of the, the two children, one son died aged 15 and that left uh, Jean, General Marie-Savier Lefebvre who became uh, who followed in his father's footsteps and became a soldier and became a general in his own right and he died in the retreat from Vilna. 14 children and they were predeceased by every single one of them. And the, you know, Lefebvre, he was, he was an old man, an older man by the time we're talking about Russia. I mean, he was leading his men out there on foot. He wouldn't ride. He would walk alongside his men. He was a man of incredible strength. And that's the loss that just breaks him. And there's there's snippets of the letter he sent. He just asked to basically be relieved of duty. He it was shattered and had to go. And there's uh, an, a kind of a letter that he sent where he sort of says, sort of, pardon my scrawl, but it's all over for me now. Um, I'm taking my wife with me. She's just lost her wits. And the, you, you almost can't quantify that sense of, lost but you get the sense of the totality of it this is a couple who had had one 
child left. They've borne 13 other losses and they lose them to frostbite and the privations of the Russian retreat. And I kind of just don't have the words for the tragedy. It's just the sense of loss is so awful that you, you almost can't quite get my head around how they managed to keep going. What is the end of their story then? Because, I mean, firstly, I'm kind of slightly staggered that Napoleon seemingly doesn't turn around and go, what the hell are you doing? Go back to duty um, and, and force Lefebvre to, say, to stay. Um, he he does come back to Napoleon's side. So they, they arrange for a memorial for their son. Um, and somehow, despite all of this, he remains on Napoleon's side. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it depends on your perspective, but somehow this sort of massive waste of lives in Russia, I can see why it was the turning point for a lot of the marshalette. And it's staggering that even after everything, Lefebvre, could still support, go, you know, go back and support Napoleon, that sense of he genuinely was a, lo a loyal Bonapartist. And he's one of the marshals who is, along with Davout, who is waiting for Napoleon when he comes back after Waterloo, um, which is, again, one of the things that always boggles my mind when Napoleon says, well, I had to leave Davout in Paris. I needed a loyal man. Hello, Lefebvre was right there. Um, and you you genuinely don't get more loyal than that. This is a man who has lost literally everything and has still turned up. Um, so so much like all the other um, Bonapartist marshals, he has his brief period of disgrace after Waterloo. Um, and he predeceases Catherine. So Marshal Lefebvre died in 1820. Catherine survived him for another 15 years. And the there's qu quite a lot of accounts of their later life because they gave so much charitably um, and supported so many good causes. They helped a lot of struggling relations. They did a lot for their sort of local community. Um, but she was, she was left on her own and the accounts were that she never really seemed to know what to do with herself. She she still gave generously whenever she was called on to do so. She still supported any struggling relations that she had. She took interest in the lives of her servants. But she just kind of didn't really know what to do with herself. And she, she was asked, you know, why she didn't go to court because she was, you know, still the Duchess of Danzig and she was entitled to do so. And she just said, our, our kind don't belong there anymore. It doesn't feel like home anymore. I don't belong there now. So a sense of, you know, again, this overwhelming sense of loss and sort of loneliness and melancholy um, for having such, you know, this wonderfully strong personality and this, you know, excellent partnership, ultimately, again, who, who lose everything. So, again, this is, this is what frustrates me when we sort of assume that women's history is, reduced to the role of passive observer because the losses that we're talking about here 
you can't quantify them. They're awful. I mean, it's a, a classic example of that thing of don't pity the dead, pity the living who are left behind, right? Because absolutely, here you have the story of somebody who loses 14, 14 children and then has another 15 years after her husband dies where she has to keep it together and keep on going because the world keeps on turning. Um, this is why these, these stories matter, people it's not going to get any cheerier I, I don't think um madame brune is up next yeah if we're gonna give out if we were gonna give out awards for courage madame brune is someone who deserved her own baton she was uh, an orphan working as a metal burnisher when she'd married the marshal um he, at the time of the revolution, is a friend of Danton. He is as Jacobin as it's possible to be. He was the most Jacobin of all the marshals. Um, and never Napoleon's favourite. And somehow, despite the fact that, you know, he he spent a lot of time in Napoleon's bad books, he, was, he never received anything like half the rewards of the rest of the marshalette, he returned to Napoleon's side in 1815 and is sent the most Jacobin of all the marshals to the Royalist South. And after Waterloo um, has has to, to give up and get back to, to Paris. And he asks um, Sir Edward Pellew to essentially evacuate him um, and Pellew refuses. He says, you know, he calls Brune the Prince of Scamps. He'd been a notorious looter um, and basically refuses him safe conduct. So Brune has to travel back um, through the Royalist South as a noted Jacobin. And it's while he's he's changing horses, when he, they've stopped for a rest period, he's mistakenly identified as the man who carried the head of the Princess de Lamballe. Now, we know he's definitely innocent because war records place him, you know, conclusively elsewhere at the time. But that didn't matter when the mob got riled. He is identified as the guilty party and a mob is is whipped up in, you know, double quick time. And he is effectively, you know, has to make a, a run for it through the town. And he, he gets into a, a local hotel and tries to take shelter. And one of the last things he does is try to write a letter to Angelique. We don't know if that letter ever got um, finished, but he's set upon by the mob. Now, we know that he was shot at point-blank range and estimates are he was stabbed something like 17 times. So he is brutally murdered and his body's chucked in the river. Um, and it floats for... They think about two days it was left floating in the river before it was retrieved and buried in an unmarked grave. And the marshal's cause of death is noted as suicide, which obviously has, obviously has implications for, for burial, etc. Um, Angelique searched and investigated for two years to find her husband's body. Eventually, eventually she, she succeeds and she finds him. She has the body embalmed and brought back to Paris. He's noticed as a suicide. She needs to get that changed to ensure her husband can get 
a decent Christian burial. Six years, she fights for that cause of death to be changed. Six years. And she wrote to everybody from Louis XVIII down. Now, this is a former metal burnisher. She is not a woman of letters. She is not an aristocrat used to mixing in these circles. She is very much out of her sphere of influence. Six years it took before the cause of death was changed to murder and she was able to see Marshall Brun effectively be at peace. Unfortunately, she died just before um, a statue was actually put up to him in his birthplace. And it's such a shame because I, I would have hoped that would have at least gave her some comfort. Um, but my God, if we're going to talk about women of courage, we would be giving her all the medals. What a story. That's mind-blowing, the determination of the woman. That's staggering. Why was there such a, a fight over the, the whole thing of overturning this? Because uh, without wishing to be gory, the guy is shot and stabbed approximately 17 times. That is very clearly not a suicide. Um, uh, I, like I said, I don't want to be gory, but was it not possible to verify that initially? Did it have to be done sort of retrospectively through other means? That I'm not sure of the specifics as regards to whether, you know, his body had to be inspected or, or what the, the situation was. I think just the reluctance to admit that it was white terror because weren't these the noble civilised people rather than those upstart Jacobins and Bonapartists. Yeah, what a story. Um, that's that's incredible. Sorry, I'm slightly reeling from that. You talked about how she, um, she died shortly before the statue went up. How much longer does she live? How much of, you know, her life actually ends up being taken up with this effort to basically see her husband get a decent burial. She lived to 1838. That's a long, a long time. So I, again, it's sort of um, into the 1820s before everything sort of, I don't want to say put to right because that's the wrong expression to use, but before the cause of death is accurately reflected. But she and she and Brune had had no children. Um, they had adopted two young women. Um, but again, this is somebody who's left ultimately alone, having to continue the fight. Does she have a comfortable, inverted commas, existence from a financial perspective, at least, while she's doing that? Or is she sort of trying to, you know, obviously... A lot of these um, individuals end up losing certainly some of their titles or some of their status, one or the other, once Napoleon's empire falls. So does she, particularly given you know the circumstances of her husband's death, um, does she end up having to sort of do all of this whilst also, you know, trying to to fend for herself? I can find frustratingly little about the rest of her life. Most of the research I did 
for this I did during lockdown so it was just what was publicly available so I'm making zero pretense at being a professional historian here this is just very much publicly available information um I would like to hope she was at least comfortable financially Brune had been prone to lying in his own pockets so I would like to think she wasn't destitute but certainly she was again would have been one of the nouveau upstarts she was never a big frequenter of court even when napoleon was in charge i'm pretty certain she had zero status there under the the bourbons no you can you can well imagine that can't you um and last but by no means least in our run through today madame nay she's another one who sadly through the the most awful of circumstances had to show you know, no small amount of courage. She had been uh, a contemporary of Hortense de Bourne at school. Um, her, her early life is blighted by tragedy. Her mother had been a, a chambermaid to Marie Antoinette. And when it becomes very clear that she, her mother is face, facing pretty much certain execution, they're, they're rounding up, um, you know, intimates of the couple, followers, associates, her mother takes her own life um, because she's so certain she's going to the guillotine and leaves um, Aglay in the, the care of her aunt, who's Madame de Campan. So she she comes into contact with, with Hortense, with Caroline, and Josephine takes an interest in her, her daughter's friend and is looking to find a suitable wife for the very dashing, uh, soon-to-be Marshal Ney, and suggests that that Aglay would be the sort of ideal solution and there's a little bit of reluctance on both sides initially a bit of misunderstanding about ages etc but ultimately they have quite a a happy marriage as well um she's got quite a lot of patience for Nay's temper they have four sons together um Madame Juno writes about how um you know, Madame Ney spent a great deal of money making their home very comfortable and, you know, creating this ideal family environment. It's when things go really south that, I mean, we talk endlessly, or the Napoleonic community does, about Ney's bravery. And it's it's ultimately when his back is very literally to the wall that Aglaé has to step up. And she's the reason I will never believe the theory that Ney cleared off to America. Her her husband is sentenced to execution by firing squad and numerous comrades and connections pers persuade him to try and escape. Um, Davu has initially told him to go for a court-martial. Ney turns that down. Suchet offers them papers and a passport and money. Um, allegedly Fouché offers to get him out and Ney being Ney turns down every single one because running away is not his style. Madame Ney lobbies everybody. Everybody that she can possibly convince and she's described as almost haunting the, the court basically trying to find anybody who will help her, who will possibly help her save her, her husband and it makes her you know it makes her really haunting reading um so this is from Ashley's the poor wife was active in supporting the plea thus put forward for amnesty for her husband 
Her visits to the gloomy conciergerie were devoted to consultations as to what could be done. She haunted the offices of Dupin and Berrier. At home, she was busy with endless letters claiming for her husband the pardon and immunity which the Convention of Paris seemed to guarantee to all. She wrote to the ambassadors, to Wellington, to the Prince Regent of England. To all her touching appeals came the same cold official answers. So she's doing everything she can to to try and save her husband. And even on the morning of Ney's execution, she went to the Tuileries one last time to plead for last-minute clemency. And somebody comes out and says, it's done. And she faints. I mean, literally to the last possible second, she was fighting to save her husband. I mean, like you say, that's that's pretty compelling in and of itself. But you know, May didn't May didn't have a an escape plan there. Um, I mean, she somehow... she's genuinely the reason. I just fully one hundred percent will never believe he ran away to America. No, even if you don't believe the wealth of other evidence, um, and the fact that it's all sort of somewhat wishful thinking. Yeah, there's there's a an important body of evidence that, you know, again, tends to be sidelined because we don't focus on the marshal's wives. Um, what's her story post Ney's death? She wound up getting remarried again and her son, one of her sons wrote about it, is that she she just could not bear the loneliness of widow, widowhood. She just couldn't cope with being alone. So she, she eventually did remarry. Um, she saw two of her sons enter the Swedish service, obviously serving under her husband's former comrade. Now, allegedly, one of Ney's sons challenged Wellington to a duel for not having done enough to save their father. And Wellington declined the duel. Um, but again, it's a bit of a necessary street theatre if Ney had run away. Um, but she, she ultimately settles down again she sees her sons succeed but I don't think she ever fully recovered from it and it's the fact that she's constantly described as haunting you kind of get that sense of she's just almost left half a person if that makes sense just by by her loss and is there any indication oh, sorry I'm back on this whole thing of oh nay escaped to America is there, um, I mean, Ney doesn't strike me as a cruel man. You you can level certain um, failings at Ney on occasion, not least, you know, the hot-headedness and, and the temper. Cruel isn't one of those things that, you know, strikes me as being Ney's, um, one of Ney's failings. And this is his wife, you know, is there enough of an indication that actually, yes, they are pretty... Devo obviously she's devoted to her husband but you know vice versa that Ney wouldn't actually put her through that yeah no way on one occasion she had come um somebody had referred to her by sort of her old um or made reference to her heritage in a very sneering way at the Tuileries and Madame Ney had become very upset and was in tears Ney storms right back to the Tuileries and reduces the Duchess of Angoulême to tears because he verbally tears her to shreds for having dared upset his wife. 
there is absolutely no way anybody will convince me he has gone and left her and his children behind. No way. No, it doesn't strike me as nice way. Stubborn, yes, um, but but not not inclined to just abandon your family and and naff off to North America in order to save your own skin. Saving his own skin is not in Nay's character. Mm -mm, no, um, he's hunting opportunities too and chucked every single one of them out the window. Yeah, completely. This has been fascinating, Rachel. Thank you so much for this. I mean, boy, we've had a we've had a docudrama right about Marie Antoinette of late um perhaps we should can ideas of more of those kinds of things and maybe uh, Steven Spielberg is not listening to this one we we can say that quite confidently but Stephen if you are by some bizarre um coincidence listening to this maybe focus on the marshal's wives as opposed to the seven-part series on Napoleon because actually you've got all of the drama you've got uh, arguably a more human story than you get out of Napoleon. That's not to say that Napoleon's story isn't human and emotional in its places, but this just sounds so much better. I, I don't mean to be rude, but it's just brilliant and lends itself so well, you know, looking at all of these fascinating dynamics. I am hoping that listeners will have gone through this and will want to know more which, as you kind of alluded to, is quite difficult because people tend to have ignored the experience of the Marshall's Wives. But you do have your blog, which is a starting point. Tell folks where they can um, find that and also any other pointers that you might have on where they can find out a little bit more. Uh, yeah, so you'll find my blog um, fairly frequently retweeted on my Twitter page. Um, I've really not been very active on Twitter recently, but I will retweet the links to the, the Marshall's Wives series that I did. If you're interested in knowing more, some of the decent sources include um, Udinos Memoirs, which were compiled by Eugenie de Cusy and include um, quite a lot of first-person accounts from her, which is excellent. Um, Davu's biography by John Gallagher actually does cover quite a lot of his relationship with Amy in quite a decent level of detail. Um, some of the... Um, biographies of the the marshals do vaguely dip on it others don't as i say don't go looking for mcdonald's wives in his memoirs because he barely mentions them um i will find i'll try and find my list of sources from the for the blog and i'll post them on my twitter account and folks in order to find rachel's twitter account all you need to do is search for at bookish underscore rachel that's r a c h a-E-L um, when you're spelling Rachel Rachel it's always an absolute joy it's always fascinating I learn vast amounts each time thank you for opening our eyes to these ladies and their, their brilliant characters and their fascinating experiences and you'll be back for another Marshall instalment very soon I will thanks very much for having me shout outs to my mentioned in dispatches Patrons Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice de Graff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, 
Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keyes Bishop, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kemble, and Gary Dennis. The Admirals, David Priest, Rob Coughlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell, and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, there's only one, quite aptly, and that's J.C. Kaiser. And the Legion's De Scholar, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.